We're in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. Characteristics of faithful shepherds, if you would stand for reading of God's word. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, of all, you, of all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. This is the word of God. Please be seated. As you know, we're coming to the end of 1 Peter, so hopefully we'll know the theme is strength and comfort and suffering. We're going to be talking about the characteristics of faithful shepherds. And if there are faithful shepherds, that implies there must be unfaithful shepherds. So that'll be developed as we go through the teaching today. Peter is writing to the pilgrims, pilgrims in the dispersion. He uses that term many times, particularly in chapter 1. Pilgrims in the dispersion. Now, pilgrims are strangers or sojourners temporary residence in a place. This is not our home. Thank you, Lord. This is not our home. We are passing on. Now, you have to remember that because you're a pilgrim, you're not home yet. You're just passing through. You're going to be running into people that have a worldview that is different than yours. Now, we want to live our lives with a biblical worldview. How does God tell us to live out our lives in the Scripture? Now, biblical worldview is this. It's the lens in which a person views the world. Now, we are immersed or we are enmeshed in a world that has a secular worldview, something that is very contrary to God. And so we are out of sorts, so to speak, within the world. We're out of balance. We're out of place. We're pilgrims. We're passing through. The world is under the sway of the wicked one, it says in 1 John 5.19. Their worldview would be something devoid of God devoid of God, and ruled by the God of this age, actually. And remember what the wicked one will, will do. If he can, he will persecute believers. He will try to kill them. And if he can't kill them, then the next step in the process is deception. In America, we are just rife with deception, rife with deception. From the beginning, it has been this way when Cain killed his brother Abel. Kill the good ones. And that's, Satan's, that's Satan's tool that he uses. Life here will never be a cakewalk. Remember that Peter is teaching us this. And he's telling us how to survive in this world that is so difficult to live in for Christians. Last week, we, we learned about hard times, learned about hard lessons from hard times. And the, the four th main things that we learned last week were trials are normal. It's a normal part of existence here on planet Earth. Expect them. They're various. We see they come in different shapes and sizes. The word was pokleos in the Greek that we had from James chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 various shapes and sizes, and they come as a continuum. They are normal, and they have a purpose. And what is God's purpose in the trials for us? To mature us, to conform us to the likeness of Christ. That God does use everything that comes into our life. It's an amazing thing. I'm not up for trials, okay? I like just smooth water, smooth as silk. But the trials help us to become more and more conformed to the likeness of Christ. I respond in the, in the trial. This is how you know that you're maturing. That in the trial, you're responding more like Jesus 
and less like you. That doesn't happen all the time. That doesn't, <laughs> that's his miracle in us because we pop out every now and then. We don't want that. Then we are to rejoice through our trials, and that was a hard, a hard uh, a verse to go through. How in the world are we to rejoice in our trials? Well, we learn that we rejoice because of what they produce. Again, they produce a changed us. And it requires the power of the Holy Spirit to do this. This isn't something that you do volitionally. This isn't natural for us in our fallen, depraved state. It is not natural. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Remember, the word was epi, upon you, to, be, to allow you to be able to navigate through these trials with some sort of joy. So that is available to us. Lesson three, that trials come from different sources. Sometimes they are from ourselves. It's just sin and bad choices. That brings a lot of trials. Uh, simply believing in Jesus, that'll bring trials, particularly through most of the world, even in America today. Uh, sometimes it's just living in a fallen world. It's just a consequence of living here in the mess of, of, of humanity that we have trials. And finally, no matter what comes, we are to trust God through the trials. And it says in 1 Peter 4.19 that we oftentimes suffer according to the will of God. And that was hard. That's a hard thing to take in. But oftentimes we suffer from the will of God. Yes, sometimes it is God's will for us to suffer. In the trial, we're to commit our souls to him. And remember that commit was to deposit, to deposit for safekeeping. It was a banking term. Like Jesus committed his soul into, into your hands. I commit my spirit was his last cry from the cross. I commit my spirit. I put my spirit into your hands, Father. That's what we do in the trial. We commit ourselves to our God in the, in the trial. And finally, we talked a little bit about wit's end, and we had a little thing at the end about wit's end. But it is very common for us as humans to reach our wit's end and go, how much more can we take of this? And it's at that point when we really have to put our trust in God, really have to put our trust in God. God is always faithful. This week, Peter's focus is going to be on elders and their responsibilities within the church, a little bit about church structure, uh, how church members are to relate to leadership. Remember, we're all living in a fallen world. Persecution abounds. And in Peter's world in particular, when he wrote this, and in our world too, the sheep were restless, fearful, and shepherds are needed more than ever during persecution and suffering to calm the waters for the sheep. Never is the church in need of leadership more than when it is being persecuted. This week, characteristics of faithful shepherds. Let's pray. Father. We thank you for your word. And Lord, your word truly is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It does reveal truth to us. So Holy Spirit, I ask you today to search each one of our hearts, speak to each one of us in our area of need, and help us to hear you, hear you inside of our beings. Tell us this is the way, walk in it. May we be obedient to what you teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. What is a leader? Well, shepherds are to be leaders, so what is a leader? Oswald Sanders says this in his book on leadership. If I were asked to define it in one single word, the word would be influence. Influence. Leadership is influence. John Maxwell goes along the same theme. He says this, he who thinks he leads but has no followers is only taking a walk. And then he goes on to say this, no matter what anybody else tells you, remember that leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. A title does not make 
for a leader. A title does not make for a leader. Spurgeon says this on leadership. He says leadership, again, is influence, not so much a position. It's influence. He talks about ministers being servants, ministers being servants. And he says, the servants are to look to the interest of all who are in Christ Jesus and let them be all as dear to him as your own children. That is how the shepherd is to view the flock that he has been given. As dear as your own children. Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, inserts this thing on elders here. It seemingly, strange. it's strange to have this here when he's talked so much about persecution, but it really isn't so strange because leadership and shepherds are really needed at times of persecution. And so we're going to see today what faithful shepherds look like. In verse 1, faithful shepherds lead with humility. Faithful shepherds lead with humility. The elders who are among you. Now, when you're reading something in Scripture, elders is plural. I'm going to emphasize this several times. There's a plurality of elders that lead the body of Christ, not one single ruler within the body or leader within the body. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So, just so you have an idea of terms, these terms are synonyms. These are synonymous terms. An elder, the word is presbyteros, and it denotes the dignity of the office. And it's always, really, it's always an older man. It's, in, it's, in, it's, it's suggesting that it's an older person. It's not an office for a younger person. Uh, so elders is a presbyteros. An overseer is a bishop. So a lot of times people call themselves bishop this and bishop that. And usually that's the to claim some sort of authority and that sort of thing, but it's just an elder. It's the same word as, as it is for an elder. It's episkopos in the Greek, and it's the duties of the elders. And then shepherds. Shepherds are where we get our word pastor from. So elders, overseers, bishops, shepherds, pastors, these are all synonyms, all synonyms. So Peter was an apostle of Christ, but yet here he calls himself a fellow elder. He doesn't try to elevate his position. There's no place where Peter tries to become preeminent within the church. He's talking about elders within the church being raised up. Now, Peter was an apostle of Christ. He was called by Jesus personally. He saw the resurrected Jesus, and it was authenticated. His apostleship was authenticated by signs and wonders. There are three things that have to happen. Those three things that I just mentioned are, are things that, that makes for an apostle of Christ. They had to see the resurrected Christ, be called by him personally, and then do signs and wonders to, to authenticate that they were an apostle of Christ. Now notice that, again, Peter does not exalt himself and say, I'm an apostle, follow me. He says, I'm a fellow elder, a fellow elder. So, apostles and prophets. Let's talk about this for just a second, because we have so much going on in the church today that really is false, talking about the New Apostolic Reformation and God is doing a new thing, raising up apostles and prophets. Let's talk about this for just a second. The apostles and prophets form the foundation of the church. Now, you see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Now, this is very significant. It talks about this at the end of verse 19. The household of God, members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, this is very significant. The apostles, prophets, and Jesus form the base of the church. 
in whom the whole building being fit together, we're pictured as the body of Christ, as a building with the foundation established, apostles, prophets, and Jesus being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And then we're all fitted in to this temple in the Lord. The foundation has been established. That's the principle here. So here, the foundation has been established. Jesus is the cornerstone. He squared the building. Now, why emphasize the foundation? Well, how often is a foundation laid in a building? Once. One time. Once. And, and, and it, to me, the apostles and the prophets once formed a foundation of the church. There's no new apostolic secession at this point. There was never apostolic secession. Never apostolic secession. That ended with the epistles and the raising up of elders within the church. Paul raised up elders, plural, wherever he went, not apostles to lead. And again, there's a movement today, the New Apostolic Reformation, that claims a new thing, that God is appointing apostles and prophets now. It's interesting that they, the ones that are being appointed now in this movement are self-appointed. I'm an apostle now. I'm a prophet now. Why? God told me. I mean, somehow he told them, but didn't tell anybody else. But the movement believes in extra-biblical revelation. And again, they're self-appointed. And this is an outgrowth of several movements that have happened over the history of our country. The Latter Rain Movement in the 1940s. The Kansas City Prophets with Mike Bickle in the 1980s. Signs and wonders and miracles and the focus on the extreme. The word faith movement today, these are all offshoots, all form the foundation of this new apostolic reformation. And I can tell you this is false teaching. Brandon House in his book, Religious Trojan Horse, tells us why. The awful of apostle of Christ is closed for the following reasons. Following reasons. No one has seen the risen Lord today. Now, you might, some people might say they saw him in the burrito, or they saw him on the side of a hill, or they saw him in a, in a cloud, or they saw him in, the, in their cereal bowl. Uh -uh. If you see the risen Lord, you know what's going to happen to you? You will fall flat on your face in abject terror. That's what John the Apostle did in Revelation chapter 1. There is no hubris, there's no arrogance when humans come in contact with the risen Lord. The glorified Jesus is a whole different picture. He is God incarnate. He is glorified, and you will fall down because in our sin state, we can't even be in his presence. We can't even be in his presence. So no one sees the risen Lord today. The foundation has already been laid. That's the second reason, the foundation. And guess what? One of the things is, is that God has to call you personally. He called each one of these guys personally. Even the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, who are you? you are, this is Jesus who you are persecuting. He was called personally. So then we are commanded not to add to the word of God. Proverbs 30, verse 5 and 6, and Deuteronomy 4, 2 tell this. Apostles and prophets today claim a new word from God. Now, this is very important. Many times these apostles and prophets have made predictions of what's going to happen, and they have not come to fruition. And what the leaders in those organizations say, well, these people are just learning they have to grow in their prophet position. Now, that is absolutely contrary to Deuteronomy chapter 18, which we'll expound on a little bit more later. So that they get better as they practice, and again, 100% accuracy. If you want to claim yourself a prophet and you're going to give prophecies, buddy, you better be 100% accurate, 
Or guess what? You get stoned. Okay, that's, that's, that's the end result of that. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 and 6 says this, very convincing. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his word, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Is that clear? That is very clear. Deuteronomy 4, 2, you shall not add to the words which I command you today, nor take away from them. You don't add to the word of God. And finally, there are, there are no apostles mentioned in the epistles. The epistles are the letters to the churches and how the churches are supposed to operate in the New Testament era. There are no apostles of, of, of Christ. There are apostles of the church, which just means, apostolos means sent ones, which would be missionaries and church planners and that sort of thing. But apostles of Christ, no, because they have not met the, the, the criteria for being an apostle of Christ. John MacArthur says this, if we need apostles today and we need prophets today, how come it never says anything about them in the epistles to the founding churches? There's not a peep about New Testament prophets or apostles in the epistles. Very strange. Now, how about prophets? Why is the office of prophet closed? Now, hear me on this, because this might be a little controversial to you, but just try to digest and, and focus in on what I'm saying here. Similar to the apostles, the office of prophet is closed because there is no need for prophets today. Now, why do we say that? Because in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, we hear that God speaks loud and clear to us through his word, through his son. God spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. In these last days, something has changed. Jesus has come. Now he speaks to us through his son. He speaks to us through his son by his word, by his word. So the office of prophet is very different than the gift of prophecy. You must understand that. The office of prophet is different than, than the gift of prophecy. People with a prophetic gift, with the gift of prophecy, speak the truth of God's word. They expound on God's word. It is very much forthtelling, not foretelling. Okay, so that's the, that's the teaching there. Many people confuse the office of prophet, that which is closed, with the spiritual gift that is active today. Now remember, prophets had to be 100% accurate or they were killed, Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22. There's no such thing as a, as, as a practicing prophet. Oh, he got it wrong today. Let's give him a break. And he's just learning. He's just a little prophet. He needs to grow up. That is not what the Bible teaches. There's countless prophecies given by people in this movement. I'll name just a few. Cindy Jacobs, Rick Joyner, the New Apostolic Reformation, International House of Prayer. These are very big ministries. These are very popular people today, and this will be very unpopular to say in some venues. But I have to, as a shepherd, tell you the truth about what's going on around you. They have made prophecies that have not come to fruition. Therefore, you would have to put the label on them false prophet. Now, we don't do that with, with joy because that's defaming to the, to the family of God, to the name of God. The New Apostolic Reformation people argue again that some, sometimes the prophets need to mature. Now, what are we to do in this area of deception? Now, this is very important that your shepherds, your elders, your leaders teach you properly. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, what was John dealing with in 1 John? He's dealing with the Gnostics. He's dealing with these people who had supernatural knowledge. All this special input from God, it's very similar that's happening today. Special knowledge, special input from God. So, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. 
Dakimozo is the word. Test the spirits, proving to be worthy to be received or not. Is it the truth or is it not the truth? Test the spirits. Are they saying what is congruent with the word of God? That is what you're testing it against. Whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, that is a true word. Many false prophets have gone into the world. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, easy memory verse. Test all things, hold on to what is good, and abstain from all forms of evil. Easy memory verse. We are commanded to test all things. When I say something and I get the that's because you're testing me. You're testing. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Apostles and prophets are not what God is raising up today. And code word, when you get into these, into these movements, is someone has a new prophetic word. These are code words. A prophetic word. I have a prophetic word for you. Or we're operating in the prophetic. When you hear those, that type of language, just go, uh-oh, hold on. We've got to make sure I'm in the right spot, listening to the right people and that sort of thing. God raises up elders, hear this, to protect the flock from false teaching and expose outright error. And there will be more on this in just a second. Peter calls himself a fellow elder in this text. He does not exert his apostolic authority. He says he's a fellow elder. And notice what he says. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I paracolito, I call you alongside to encourage and comfort you. That's what I'm doing. I'm walking this thing with you. He's not elevating himself. He's not elevating himself. And he's also a partaker of the, of the glory that Bill will be revealed. What's he talking about there? He's telling them, I am a fellow elder, even though I was at the Mount of Transfiguration, and I saw the transfigured Jesus. You, I mean, he could really go off on this. You know what I saw? I mean, he could have said, man, when Jesus did this, and, and I was right there, and look at me, I'm a high and mighty guy. He didn't, ne that's never how Peter puts himself. Never how any of the apostles put themselves. They never elevate themselves. And then he said, he, listen, he, saw, he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter saw the miracles of Jesus. Peter walked on water, at least for a few steps. And then he took a, took a belly flop because he lacked faith. But Peter was a witness to the crucifixion of Jesus. He was one of them that ran, but he knew that Jesus was crucified. He was a witness of the resurrection. He saw the resurrected Jesus, but yet he's still not elevating himself. He saw the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, and you know what else he saw? He saw Jesus do something absolutely amazing, never done before in the history of humanity, never, did, well, never will be done again until he comes back, as in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, Jesus floats up into the heavens and gets caught up in a cloud, and this same Jesus will return in like manner for us. He's coming back for us, and Jesus always, always, always keeps his promise. You can take solace in that. You can take solace in that. Regardless, regardless of his experiences, Peter says this, Peter does not view himself above other elders, but alongside them. Not apart from them, but a partner with them. You know what happened to Peter in his life? He had been humbled. All of us need to be humbled to be used of our God. When we think more highly of ourselves than we ought, get ready. Get ready for the humbling. And it's always worth it when God humbles you 
and you come out on the other side changed. Painful in the process. The more arrogant you are, the harder this process is. How do I know? How do you know? You've been humbled. And you're hopefully coming out on the other side, not thinking of yourself more highly than you want. Shepherds are to lead with humility. That is verse 1. Verse 2, shepherds leading. Faithful shepherds, now hear this, the faithful shepherd's main job, main job of your pastor, teacher, shepherds, whatever you want to call this person, is to feed the flock. To feed the flock. Let's read this. Verse 2, shepherd. And again, that word is going to mean feed, guide, and I'll tell you that in just a second. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. So, first of all, we are to shepherd the flock of who? God. It is not the flock of Chuck Swindoll. It is not the flock of Chuck Smith. It is not the flock of John MacArthur. And it certainly is not the flock of Rick Gorham. It is the flock of God that we are to shepherd. It's God's flock. All pastors, all elders are under-shepherds, under-shepherds. Jesus is called the chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. And please note that, again, pastors are elders, and the Bible always speaks of a plurality of elders. I want to in, just enforce this because it's a very important concept. Never is, is the role a female role. It is always a male role. Always a male role. That has been distorted in our country, and there's all kinds of, of gymnastics that are done to try to f- support a female role in, as a pastor. This is simply against the Word of God. Simply against the Word of God. It is not a one-man show. It is not one person has all authority. The authority must be distributed. Why is that? Because we're so pathetically depraved, we need accountability. All of us need accountability. We just need it. Now, there is something called, usually the, oftentimes when you have a plurality of elders, there's one elder that stands out. And that would be, I'm the teaching elder here. I have no more authority or power than Dale or Dale. That's the other two elders, okay? But sometimes that person is referred to as, as the first among equals. Sometimes you'll hear that phrase. And that's, I don't, that's all I can say about that. In Jeremiah... Uh, 3.15, we talk about, well, excuse me, the title is elder. His duties are to pastor and shepherd the flock of God. That is what he does. The title is elder, and he pastors the flock of God. Jeremiah 3.15 talks about the true shepherds. Hear this, and I will give you shepherds according to my heart. Notice, I will give you shepherds. It's God who gives the shepherds. Why is that important? It's not a vocation. It's not a job. It's not something I think I'm going to do because, oh, it's really easy. You just got to go up there once a week and you just just throw a few lines out there, and it's so easy. I can tell you, it is not easy. I'm not trying to extol this thing because there are a lot of benefits. You have a lot of free time, but you have to be disciplined in this thing. You have to discipline yourself to do what your calling is. is. So, and I will give you shepherds according to my heart. It's a calling who will feed you, that's the main job, with knowledge and understanding. So the main job of shepherds is this. Again, the word shepherd is poimeno, poimeno, and it means pastor. 
So every pastor is an elder, and they are to shepherd poimeno the flock. It means feed, guide, guard, encourage the flock to advance further. Now, what do you not hear in this? You do not hear that he's supposed to be really funny. You do not hear that he's supposed to be a motivational speaker. You do not hear that he's supposed to be whatever else people conjure up that he's supposed to be. He is to rightly divide the word of truth. That is the responsibility of every shepherd. Every shepherd. So shepherd the flock, feed and guide. Then elders, again, protect, or the shepherds protect by sound teaching and expose false teaching. Expose false teaching. This is all part of it. This is not comfortable. It's not comfortable to say names or to bring out people or to bring out organizations. It is not comfortable to do that. But that's what shepherds are called to do to protect the flock, to protect the flock. Now, 2 Peter talks about false teachers. Galatians talks about false teachers. 1 and 2 Corinthians is all corrective about what's falsely going on within the church. Jude, you know, Jude, the, the half-brother of Jesus, was going to write a, a, that little book was supposed to be how to, how to experience our common salvation. But he ended up saying there's so many false teachers coming into this that he wrote, that he wrote something to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to all the saints. Jude is, is, is dealing with false teaching. First John is dealing with the Gnostics. Second Timothy 4.14, Paul names names. Alexander the coppersmith did much harm to me. Stay, and the implication is, stay clear of that dude, okay? And how about in 3 John, when John warns about Diotrephes, who wants to have the preeminence? He wants to be the big cheese. He wants to be the lone ranger, leading all the people. They name names. Shepherds are supposed to do their jobs willingly, not by compulsion, not being forced into it. Oh, my dad wants me to be a pastor, so I guess I should be a pastor. Or everybody expects me to be this. I think I should. No, it's a calling. It's a calling from God. So it's not a job, a vocation. Again, it's a calling. But you must meet the character qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus 1. All the things listed there are, are character qualifications. We've been through this in the past. I don't have time to develop that. But character is everything in leadership. Character is everything in leadership. There's one thing that, there, that is there that is not a character quality, and that is something that an elder must be able to do, and that is to teach sound doctrine. To teach sound doctrine and to defend the faith. Shepherds are not in it for, the, for dishonest gain. That's what he says. Not in for, but eagerly. It's a, again, it's a calling. Not a lover of money. That's what that word means but for the love of ministry and of people and to glorify God. Now, there's a caution here, and please hear this, particularly in this epoch of time that we're living in when more and more deception is, is going out, where it's becoming more common for people to be deceived. And the people are, are just, just, just set up for deception because the Word of God has been taken out of churches and replaced with little ditzel you know, maybe a verse here or a verse there, and then motivational speaking. So people generally don't know what the Word says. So they're left unprotected. They have no shepherd protecting them. So hear this. 
a caution with pastors profiting on the backs of the sheep, living in opulence and in mansions. Ezekiel 34, verse 2 through 5 says this, and it's rather profound. It happened all the way back in the Old Testament times, and it continues to happen today. Listen to this. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. You're fleecing the flock. You're getting everything beneficial from the flock. That is what happens today. How many times do you hear, and you just most recently heard of a, of a big-name evangelical-type person that wants to buy a plane? Uh, not, a, not just his first plane. This is his second plane because it's faster, it's more economical, and I can fly all over the place better than first class. And so send me your seed money so that I can fly my plane. Or for boats, or you look how some of these people live in mansions and that sort of thing. Fleecing the flock is something that is detestable to God. Now, should pastors be supported financially? That's a question. Then we go to Scripture to find that out. And we go to 1 Timothy 5.17, so the answer is yes. Yes. Those who labor in the Word, whoever the teaching elder is that labors in the Word, is worthy of double honor. And that double honor means value or money compensation. 1 Corinthians 9.14 in the ESV says this, In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. Now, there's a caveat to this that must be adhered to. If the church cannot afford a pastor, the pastor must be prepared to work. Now, this happens all the time in our country where where ministries have to downsize because the congregations have got smaller, and instead of pastors going to work, they quit and find another job, another pastoring job. That is not what should be going on. If you've been called to some place, you don't leave unless God calls you to another place. You don't leave because you're not being paid. You get a, get a job to support yourself until the church can. That's the teaching here. Paul was a tent maker. You do not want to be a burden on the church. And again, how many quit if they are not paid? And that's the majority. How much support should a pastor receive? Should he be living high and mighty, better than all the people in the group? Should he be living in poverty? There's no real guideline in Scripture that tells us this, but most people, and I think a sane way to look at this, is a pastor should live like the medium within the church. That's reasonable. It's not scriptural, but it just seems reasonable. So, not live in opulence, but not live in poverty, but kind of like the median of the, of the church. So, review. Shepherds are to lead with humility. The shepherd's main job is to feed the sheep. And verse 3, faithful shepherds are not dictators, but examples. Now, this thing can go to your head, the shepherding thing. It can go to your head. You think you're in charge of everybody, and it's not your church. It's Jesus' church. You are an under-shepherd. You're not the king. You are a servant. That's what the shepherds are. Verse 3, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you. Now, why is Peter saying this? Because it must have been an issue that he had to deal with at this time. But being examples to the flock, being examples to the flock. So, not to be lords and masters. Not leadership by intimidation or manipulation. 
You are to lead by example and not force. Jesus is the great example of the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, the good shepherd. He never forced anyone to follow him. People always followed volitionally. In the East, sheep know the shepherd's voice, are comforted by the shepherd's presence, just his presence. They're comforted. They're walking in sync with the shepherd. They willingly will follow the shepherd. The shepherd will protect the sheep and, if need be, die for the sheep. That's what we want to do. We want to follow the shepherd. And again, the shepherds will protect, protect the sheep and, if need be, die for the sheep. The shepherd is not a hireling. He doesn't run when the wolves come. He doesn't bolt when there's trouble. He sticks and he hangs in. He will die for the sheep if he has to. Now, conversely, a hireling, on the other hand, runs from danger. They don't stick. They don't stand. In the West, shepherds drive the sheep with sheepdogs, and the shepherd follows, driving the herd. In John chapter 10, we see Jesus being the good shepherd. And he talks about he gives his life for the sheep in 10.11. And then he talks about the wolves coming and the hireling running from the wolves. But, oh, the shepherd will stick. The shepherd will stand. And then he says this great thing in 10.14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my sheep. And in 10.27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. Oh, the shepherd, the Jesus, we volitionally follow our Lord. Volitionally, there's no force, there's no coercion. There is just following because why? We love the shepherd. We're safe by the shepherd. He leads us by the still waters. He guards us. He guides us. He protects us. He provides so much for us, and we volitionally follow the shepherd. Great picture. Great picture. So remember, to the elders, to the elders, it's Jesus' flock that has been entrusted to you. We are servants of our Lord, and we are servants of the body. Servants of the body. Shepherds have a huge responsibility to watch over what Jesus has entrusted to them, to be an example to the flock. And again, it takes character qualification. It takes character to do this. And it's not a young man's position. And it certainly isn't a female calling. Verse 4. Faithful shepherds will be rewarded. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory. But notice what he says about this. That does not fade away. We see in Revelation, when we have our crowns and we cast them at the feet of Jesus, but this is the one crown that God says will never fade away. Through all eternity, shepherds are going to be blessed for shepherding faithfully the flock of God. That's an encouragement. I don't know if you know it or not, but shepherds take a lot of hits. People love you one day. They're hugging you one day, giving you kids. I love you. You're the best thing since chipped beef. And the next day, wham, wham, wham. You're not worth anything. You're a false teacher. You're a heretic. You're whatever. It just comes in waves. The chief shepherd will come for his sheep at the rapture of the church. At the judgment seat of Christ, I believe you'll receive your rewards or loss of rewards. We've talked about this many times. In 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Jesus will evaluate the ministry of the shepherds. That's why it's very serious to be a shepherd. 
It's not something casual. You just don't, you just don't take this casually. You just don't do this the way you feel like you want to do it. We have a mandate to follow the word of God. Jesus will evaluate the ministry of the shepherds. And it's a not, I love this. It's not a matter of fame or the size of your church, but it is a matter of faithfulness. It is a matter of faithfulness. Were you faithful with those entrusted to you? And if you are found faithful to your calling as a pastor, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Forever, can you imagine this? Forever rewarded for your faithfulness. And it's only given to a faithful few shepherds. This isn't doled out to everyone who calls themselves a pastor. It's only for those who are faithful. What does faithful look like? I was wondering. Faithful shepherds, what does it look like? And I found this when I did my literature search on this, or search the scripture. First of all, faithful means labored in the word. You know what labored is? It means exhausted, fatigued, dig, toil. Not all shepherds do this. We see this in 1 Timothy 5.17. Not all shepherds do this. You can fake your way through this. I can, I've been doing this long enough. I can fake my way through this and be half prepared. And that is a dishonor to God and it's a dishonor to the people. You dig in the Word. And God knows if you're laboring in the Word or not. Secondly, the faithful shepherd guards and guides and protects the sheep from false teaching. Acts 20, 29. What did Peter say to the elders in Ephesus? He said, wolves are going to come in from outside and wolves are going to rise up from within the body. And you are to be able to identify them and protect the body from what they are teaching. That's Acts 20.29. Not all shepherds do this. Thirdly, they are to encourage the sheep to advance further. Not to rest on their laurels. Now, I have a question for you. When does it ever say in Scripture that I've done enough in this thing, it's time for somebody else to step up and do their part? Now, you're, you're, I've said this many times, your job might change in, in Christianity. There are limitations that we have if we get older. Things do change. But we are always called to be engaged at some level until we are taken out of here. That is the truth. We are, in, we, we are called to be involved at some level until we're taken out of here. We do not want to decline into laziness. The goal is maturity and to continue on until God calls us home. And then finally, the shepherd that is faithful is not in it for the money, 1 Peter 5, 2, but for the glory of God, and not all people do this. Many want to be paid more and more and more for what they do. What did Peter find out about being a shepherd? Well, the picture of Jesus as a shepherd was a precious one, and the privilege of being a shepherd of the flock of Christ was for Peter the greatest privilege that a servant of God could enjoy. And I could not agree more with that statement. It's an honor to be called by Jesus to shepherd the flock. It is the greatest honor of my life. You know, I went, I went to nursing school and I graduated there. And though I hated it, it was an honor to graduate from there. Then I went to anesthesia school and I graduated from there. Then I had a profession for 40 years. And I was looked at and highly esteemed in my job. I'm not trying to promote myself or anything, but because I tried hard, I worked hard and that sort of thing. But all of those things pale in comparison to being a shepherd of a flock. 
The greatest joy and the greatest fulfillment of my life was when God allowed me to be a shepherd of a group of people. The greatest honor. And I thank him for that. I thank him for that. Verses 5 through 7, a faithful shepherds pro- promote submission, humility, and caring. And then we'll be through. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Now, when we see the word submit in our culture, right away people go, ooh, I don't like that. I want to be the one that's being submitted to. You know, but I submit to somebody. Submit to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He's talking about the body. He's talking the body being submissive to their leadership and to one another within the body. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares to you. All your cares. Let's develop this. This word younger here had me stumped for a little bit. Likewise, you younger people, and I'm thinking, oh, that's all the teenagers. Yeah, you should submit to your elders. I like that. I mean, submit to your mom and your dad, your elders in a church. Yes. That's, but I actually think it's, it's actually looking at this. I like the way this guy described it. He says this, the idea being conveyed is that the believers are to be as youth who sit at the feet of a parent to be fed and to learn and to grow. It conveys submission. It's talking about the whole body being in submission to the leadership, to the elders. I think that that's probably a good way to put it. Uh, Because all of you be submissive to one another. That would be the whole group, older, younger. It seems like he's talking to the same group here. So he's talking about the whole body of Christ. And notice this. You are to submit yourselves to your elders. Now, who is the Holy Spirit, through Peter, speaking to? He's speaking to the individual Again, he is not speaking to the elders to say, you submit to me, and you better do what I tell you to do, or you're going to be in trouble, shame on you, whatever, however that goes, okay? No, that it is something that, that the people being taught do volitionally and follow volitionally the shepherds, okay? It is not something coerced or forced. If forced submission or if there is coercion, to submit, that is a sign of a cult. Forced submission to some leader is a sign of a cult, not a faithful shepherd. And everybody in the body is to be submissive to one another. That is actually written in the present tense. And that is to be an ongoing action. That is the way we conduct ourselves within the body with one another. I put you ahead of myself. That's humility. Is that easy? Is that natural? No, that's not natural. There's not natural. There's sometimes when the hair of my head goes up and, and I got to submit to this person. Oh, boy, I don't know if I can. That's the problem. There's some issues there. Be submissive to one another. So it's a theme of Scripture. Wives are submit to their husbands in Ephesians 5.22. We are to submit to one another globally again in Ephesians 5.21. Now, why the emphasis on submission within the body? Satan is a master at disruption. And he will do whatever he can within any group to stir it up. To stir it up. So why the emphasis on submission? It downplays proud independence, pride, this feeling of I'm better than you. And also it promotes stability, 
peace, and humility. And again, Satan is an expert at stirring up messes within body, and if we submit to one another, that helps us counter his tactics. Mutual submission is the Christian way. All ages, all ages submit to one another. All genders submit to one another. All classes submit to one another. Female, male, poor, rich, young, old, mutual submission within the body of Christ is what it's called for. Does everybody understand that? Just, just, just say yes. If yes. Yes, Mr. Corbin, yes. Okay. So the word all means all. Submission promotes humility, peace, and diminishes the I'm better than you attitude. We are to be clothed with humility. Philippians 2.3 says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but with humility consider others better than yourselves. Now that's a miracle of God. That's not natural. That is not natural. That is God working in me. And guess what? When you do that, that's a sign that you're growing up. That you're becoming more mature. You're looking more like Jesus and less like you. That's the goal. Proverbs 3.34, against God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God hates pride. Pride entered God's creation through Satan. Proverbs 6.16 says this, Six things God hates, seventh an abomination unto him. And the first one is this, a haughty eye or a proud look. Someone who raises themselves up, prideful, just like Satan. I'm better than you. You should worship me. I'm the greatest of all these angels. You should worship me. That was Satan, and that is pride, and God hates it. Sports figures. What do we see today with sports? It has deteriorated. It is one big pride mess. Our culture promotes pride, this look-at-me attitude, me first, I'm number one, and God hates it. Remember, he resists the problem, but gives grace to the humble. Submission's order. Submission's order. All submit to God. The church submits to the elders, and all submit to one another. When we do that, this thing works better. This thing works better. When suffering according to the will of God, remember verse 7, never forget this, God cares for you. God cares for you. Seven billion people in this world, and God looks at you and sees you. That's wonderful. Remember that. When you humble yourself, it is a lot better to be humbling yourself than to have God humble you. That hurts. Cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. God will save you. He will strengthen you. He'll deliver you. He'll give you assurance and confidence. Our loving Father is always present to pick us up because the God of the universe, one so great, cares for me. Isn't that just amazing? He will help me through it all. God cares for you. You know how I know that God cares for me immensely? He sent his son to die for me. Just put your name there. For me, for, for us. It is personal. That's the greatest evidence of all. Man judges by success. I didn't put this on the overhead. I should have. Man judges by success. God judges by faithfulness. God cares for his children. Max Lucado, I'm going to close with this, says this. He shares this in a touching story of a father's willingness to care for his son. Jim, Jim Redmond's son, Derek, a 26-year-old Briton, was favored to win the 400-meter race in 1992 Barcelona Olympics. Halfway into a semifinal heat, a fiery pain seared through his right leg, 
He crumpled to the track with a torn hamstring. As the medical attendants were approaching, Redmond fought to his feet. It was animal instinct, he would later say. He set out hopping and pushing away the coaches in a crazed manner to finish the race. When he reached the stretch, a big man pushed his way through the crowd. He was wearing a T-shirt that read, Have you hugged your child today? And a hat that challenged, Just do it. The man was Jim Redmond, Derek's father. And he goes to Jim and he says, You don't have to do this. And Derek says, Yes, I do, Dad. Well, then, Jim said, we're going to finish this race together, and they did. Jim wrapped Derek's arm around his shoulder and helped him hobble to the finish line, fighting off the security men, the son's head sometimes buried in the father's shoulder. They stayed in Derek's lane to the very end. The crowd clapped. Then the crowd stood. And then the crowd cheered. And then the crowd wept as the father and son finished the race. What made the father do it? What made the father leave the stands to meet his son on the track? Was it the strength of his child? No. It was the pain of his child. His son was hurt and fighting to complete the race. So the father came to help him finish. And God does just the same for us. He comes out of heaven and comes to this earth and puts his arm around us and helps us to finish the race. Our prayers may be awkward, our attempts may be feeble, but since the power of prayer is in the one who hears it and not in the one who says it, our prayers make a difference. All you have to do is be humble enough to turn your cares to the Lord. God is more than able to take anything you cast his way. More than able. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. Holy Spirit, please use this word and plant it into our hearts. Thank you that you have allowed us to hear this teaching today. Thank you, Lord, that we can cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. Thank you that you've given us the power to live with one another, submitting to one another. Thank you that you've given us the ability to study your word and know what truth is. And thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit to allow us to walk this thing out successfully. May you become greater in us, and may we become less. And may the Lord Jesus be exalted in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.